playing the pitch in soccer, one of Indiana Senator Todd Young's passions. Taught him life lessons from winning a state championship at Carmel High School to competing at the collegiate level for the U.S. Naval Academy. His path in the military eventually led him to the Marines and then to serving in government. A milestone political victory, a big win over Indiana powerhouse politician Evan Bayh. Now, I acknowledge that campaigns are tough, really tough sometimes. Our Democrat neighbors fought hard. But now it's time to come together for the good of our state and our country. Todd Young, his deep Hoosier roots, service in the military, and how working out in the Senate gym opened the door to what could be the biggest boon to U.S. semiconductor manufacturing in history. Indiana Senior Senator, my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Todd Young, now entering his second term serving in the U.S. Senate. Among his big accomplishments so far, co-sponsoring bipartisan legislation designed to weaken China's global grip on microchip production and provide a big boost to the U.S. economy. Thanks to the Chips and Science Act, Skywater Technology is moving forward with its plans to partner with Purdue to build a $1.8 billion facility. In fact, a a corridor of the semiconductor industry will run through the state of Indiana. An interesting tie to how the CHIPS Act came about, Young and Chuck Schumer exercising next to one another in the Senate gym. A page out of Politics Makes Strange Bedfellows. And I am pleased to be joined on the Business and Beyond podcast by Indiana Senator Todd Young. And Senator, thanks for uh, taking the time to join me. Oh, thanks for having me, Gary. It's great to be with you. Hey, I know you've been busy on Capitol Hill on a number of uh, measures, but I think you've been spending a fair amount of time, too, at least with one eye on the World Cup, right? I know you're a former soccer player. What's your take on the USA's performance in the World Cup? I mean, there was some good stuff, but I think, you know, a little disappointment there at the end. Yeah, sort of a box score. You know, on one hand, uh, we we upped our game. Uh, we we made the World Cup this time, and performed fairly well. Uh, we had we had some missteps along the way, but you know, I think many of us were hoping. Uh, I've been watching soccer for years. I, it was my passion growing up. In fact, yeah. I played in high school and played in college, and and. Uh, uh, I was really pulling for Team USA, and I actually think they had the talent to break through, to make it to the Elite Eight, yeah. and they, they did squeak through uh, out of out of uh, the, the group stage, which is where you first start and then advance into the Sweet 16, but, you know, we just made some mistakes that you, you can't make if you want to go deep into uh, this tournament that we call the World Cup, and, of course, in four years, it's going to be in the United States. Yeah. Mexico and and Canada across North America. So we have an opportunity with a really young team, I think, to show quite well uh, in four years. What, what do you think it's going to take for the the, the U.S. Uh, the men's side? The women have you know certainly broken through, but on the men's side, enormous improvement, no question about it. Um, 
obviously such a big population. Is there something missing here that would, you know, to get the men's team over the top? Yeah. You know, I hate to say it because we've got such talented people and they, yeah. they work so hard to put it all together. But I think our coaching was, was pretty good. Bearholder, uh, and I'm a little biased because I actually, I went back to my college career, which was not particularly notable at the Naval Academy, right? I, uh, I made the team, I lettered, but I was on the field against Greg Berhalder. Uh, oh, really? Wow. Team. He played for North Carolina, but I think he did a, a pretty good job. Uh, he was out coached, I believe, yeah. uh, the, the last game. So that's one area where, whether it's Berhalder or another, we need to continue to up our game. And um, the other area is just, our strikers, the guys who are supposed to put the ball in the back of the net, they need to make the most of their opportunities. And that's yeah. been a, a problem for about 20 years, ever since I've really been diving into the sport at the international level. So those are my thoughts for what yeah. are, whatever they're worth. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's get uh, to, the, uh, to the real business at hand. And, yeah, we're uh, a basketball state. So that's uh, exactly. I don't want to spend yeah. too much time on that, right? That's good. And Purdue and IU look to be really strong this year, so we'll, we'll we're, we're looking yeah. forward to that. Chips Act, uh, which has gotten a lot of attention certainly uh, throughout the United States, and in particular here in Indiana, where there's potential for real impact. I think we're actually already uh, seeing it. Uh, I want to talk about some of those particulars? But you co-authored that with with Chuck Schumer, right? So strange bedfellows. You actually an actually bipartisan effort in Washington D.C. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, well, I, it, believe it or not, it happened through a personal relationship that uh, started and really um, has has developed a little bit in the Senate gym of all places. Right? Really? Uh, Chuck works out on the recumbent bike next to me. He uses his flip phone and conducts business. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wake up and have an insane amount of coffee early in the morning and, and do some cardio at a machine next to him. So we, we've gotten to talking about different things, usually debating over the years. But one thing we really agree on is uh, that the sort of existential challenge that the Chinese Communist Party could present to the United States. And we developed some legislation several years ago about upping America's game in, in terms of research and development, some key tech areas. We also recognized a particular vulnerability to our economy and, and to our national security enterprise. We depend on countries you know, in the Asia Pacific for almost all of our computer chips, especially those that go into our weapon systems. So we started working uh, and reworking legislation and um, eventually, you know, through a, a whole lot of, of blood, sweat and tears, finally, we got that signed into law just months ago. And it's going to be a huge upside benefit to the state of Indiana. You know, we make things in Indiana. We're a manufacturing state. We take a lot of pride in that. And you could see Indiana, perhaps some surrounding states, making their mark in this 21st century is, you know, the, on the coast, they, they make software and they'll continue to do that and do that well. But we could really make the hardware that is essential to military effectiveness and, and to help run a modern economy. And we're starting to carve out a bit of a niche in that area already. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that, that jobs impact, but back on the national security piece, Give us here on the uh, certainly on the inside there on that. What's the in, in your view what was the real threat from a national security standpoint? Point? Well, when you're dealing uh, with a, a country uh, like China that is it has a state capitalist model 
so it's a capitalist uh, country in the sense that they produce things for consumers and businesses, and, and uh, they, of course, consume a lot of those things, bring them into the country as well. But in the end, it's, it's the Chinese Communist Party that's in charge. And uh, they can manipulate markets, and, and there's a real fear that they'll manipulate markets to their own end, cut off our supply, whether it's, it's from Chinese uh, suppliers or, the, or those in neighboring countries like Taiwan, cut off our supply to get these mission-critical uh, computer chips. We saw it. We got a taste of what this could look like uh, during the pandemic when we had auto plants up in Fort Wayne, as you know, uh, Gary, that uh, had to idle a couple times just over the last year yeah. on account of not having sufficient supply of computer chips. So we really need to make our economy more resilient. And then there's a separate problem, but related problem, which is the computer chips that go into our, our, our uh, guided missile destroyers and our radars and uh, our sophisticated weaponry and, and uh, uh, our, our systems to prevent nuclear weapons from falling on us. Those computer chips are also sourced from other countries. And, and we just, we have to have a highly trusted domestic source for, for those computer chips. And that led to our significant investments in enticing many of these manufacturers to locate on our soil, and then also investing in next generation research. So the fastest chips required to, to outpace Chinese technology are made here in the United States as well. There were critics, certainly, including in your own party, in your own state. A number of uh, your colleagues voted against it. How do you kind of reconcile that or or react to that opposition to uh, to the CHIPS Act? Well, listen, I understand this is a bit of an unnatural act for uh, a lot of Republicans to sign on to a big spending bill. Let's just sort of state the obvious from yeah. the outset, right? So I was uh, I was swimming against the current there. But it's also a very natural you know, uh, inclination for many of us to support our national security. And since I've already established this is a major national security investment, that's how I was able to get significant support among Republicans in the U.S. Senate and, and uh, a pretty decent sprinkling of support over uh, in the House. I suspect had we had a, a Republican president uh, continuing to champion this initiative, as, as frankly, President Trump and his State Department did for a period of time before he left office, uh, the, the outcome with respect to uh, a number of Republicans would have been a little bit different. But I was proud to do something hard at a time when, frankly, a lot of Americans were questioning whether or not members of Congress to, could do anything hard and, and yeah. just, uh, frankly, took a poll every time they wanted to uh, accomplish something for the good of the country. Yeah, yeah. In your opinion, this is speculation, uh, obviously, but what do you see as as the impact ultimately in Indiana? We've already seen impact with Skywater Technology up at uh, up at Purdue and West Lafayette. Other investment in that that part of the state. Uh, the assets here with Purdue, with Notre Dame, IU, and and others. What do you see potentially? Could Indiana become one of these tech hubs that I, I think as part of the Chips Act, right? It's creating yeah. these these technology hubs. So in addition to making more chips here, which is what the Skywaters of the world are going to do, and to packaging more of the chips, which is actually a, a really high value added uh, activity and, and uh, we're poised to be pretty good in that area, we're gonna see less disruption among our manufacturers, uh, which is real important to get products 
uh, into the hands of, of consumers. So that'll prepare us for whether it's the next global pandemic or the next geopolitical intervention from, you know, whether it's China or somebody else. But as, as you really look at the, the sizzle in this legislation uh, for Hoosiers, um, I think it's, uh, it's going to be the research investment that goes into Indiana University, Notre Dame, Purdue, and others, leading to the spinoff of all sorts of startups, which can employ Hoosiers. And many of these startups, of course, will, will grow into larger companies. And then there is, uh, as, as you uh, indicate, there's a provision in the legislation that seeks to designate uh, a number of areas around the country as technology hubs. And you can imagine the state of Indiana, because of our resident expertise in agriculture and life sciences, becoming, for example, designated the Ag Informatics Center of Excellence in the country, and therefore the repository for quite a, a lot of uh, venture capital dollars coming in. If you receive a designation as, as uh, this, uh, or say the advanced manufacturing you know, hub of the country, you would receive additional workforce development dollars. You would receive uh, some incentives to ensure that more of our, our startup companies are able to get over the so-called valley of death early in their, their life cycle so that they can make it into uh, years of where you tend to have more profitability and survivability longer term. So that's, that's the really enticing value proposition is, is uh, getting that designated and then government can make the handoff to private sector. You see more private dollars flowing in and we'll have that flywheel of private investment that we've always been searching for in the Midwest, but we haven't really benefited from the same weight of investment from the federal government that say Silicon Valley or Boston or the North Carolina Research Triangle have. So this would correct for that, uh, that inequity. Can Indiana produce the workforce needed for for these industries, there are a lot of there's a lot of concern about that. Again, we've got tremendous academic institutions, four-year institutions, not to mention you know, Ivy Tech and Vincennes and the two-year institutions as well. But is that is that a potential you know high hurdle? Well, and, and so this is a challenge. Everyone's having to up their game. I think we in Congress should have to up our game as we, as we deal with this generational, maybe multi-generational challenge posed by the Chinese Communist Party. You know, our, our business communities having to up their game. And I would say our educational institutions are going to have to as well. That means ensuring that their curricula uh, are reflective of the needs of, of uh, local labor markets that uh, are K through 12 or pre-K through 14. Uh, ecology is, is preparing people to go, uh, survive and, and succeed at these universities. We've provided the resourcing in the Chips and Science Act. I mean, there's funding for people to meaningfully participate in this tech economy in the heartland by, by funding everything from community college to postdoctorate uh, education in these tech areas like hypersonics, battery storage, uh, uh, semiconductors. It's going to be up to the leaders uh, of our education institutions to make sure our people are prepared. What's your take on the nat? First of all, the national economy. You know, a lot of speculation about recession. Are we in a recession now? How deep might a recession go? As you look to next year, you look at some of the macro factors out there with inflation and, and fuel prices and supply chain. Well, what's your take on on where things are? Well, listen, I, I I don't have the ability to talk the economy down. Diagnostically, uh, I'm, I'm anxious, as are a lot of Hoosier businesses and. 
and um, investors and rank and file workers. You know, I mean, uh, the problem with inflation, and, and it's been said by many for a long period of time, is once you get into an inflationary cycle, it's very difficult to find your way out. So my strong suspicion is that the Federal Reserve will have to continue ticking up uh, interest rates and the notion of a soft landing, uh, that's, that's a phrase we throw around liberally, but you know, the, the landing won't be soft for those workers uh, who are put out of work for those businesses that don't make it. And so that's what's so unfortunate here. But I, th I think we're going to experience some pain. Let's just hope that that pain is fairly short lived. Uh, let's say the six to nine month time frame as opposed to for the next couple of years. And I'll do whatever we can from a policy standpoint, of course, to help us, you know, uh, rebound. Uh, but um, I see some pain ahead, unfortunately. Yeah, what what would you take on the Indiana economy? You know, a lot of uh, a lot of good, a lot of challenges, no question, but a lot of good things going on too. Uh, as you look at at the state and be it uh, whatever the sector might be, including the technology we're talking about. But how would you how would you characterize Indiana's economy? Well, I think one of the things you you need to do with a business or or, or with your governments uh, is is to make sure that uh, you're healthy, so that when a crisis comes. You're prepared for it. And we've done a great job as a state over the years, I think, balancing our budget so that uh, we won't have to make as many hard decisions, perhaps, uh, when we see a dip in, in the revenue coming in. Our businesses are healthy and, you know, to the extent they need to be diversified uh, based on the uh, estimation of, of uh, their executives and their ownership, they're doing that. And our state's more diversified, far more diversified than it used to be. I mean, goodness gracious, we have a Salesforce tower in Indianapolis. Yeah. Yeah. For those who moved into Indianapolis for the last decade or so, let me tell you, it didn't used to be this way. <laughs> right. I remember I, I grew up in Indiana, uh, class of 90 Carmel High School, back when we had cow fields in Carmel. I got to tell you, it is amazing as you go up that uh, Meridian Corridor and see all the businesses are there. So we're going to not only survive, but I think a state like Indiana that's it's done its work, it's poised to do well coming out of something like this as businesses flee from, you know, maybe Michigan or, or Illinois, uh, where the environment's perhaps less supportive. We'll have much more ahead with Indiana Senator Todd Young when we return on the Business and Beyond podcast. We'll talk about uh, his time at the U.S. Naval Academy and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast returns. At PNC Bank, we're committed to making a difference in the lives of our customers and communities by helping them move forward financially. As a Main Street Bank, we try to do right by our customers with every encounter. Our local teams offer personalized financial advice to help guide you in making the best decision. We're proud to be part of your community. PNC Bank. See how we can make a difference for you at PNC.com. Copyright 2022, the PNC Financial Services Group Bank, all rights reserved. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Indiana Senator Todd Young. And Senator Young talked a lot about the CHIPS Act and the legislation, the economy in the first half. Let's get a little more personal with you. Now, uh, grew up in Carmel, but you were born in Pennsylvania, right? How did you? How did that all work and you get to Indiana? 
Yeah, you know, it's an inconvenient uh, bio point that uh, I have to explain the Pennsylvania thing, but you're, <laughs> <laughs> it's my dad's first real job out of college, not working for his father at, at the family small business, was in Pennsylvania. And he worked for a company, I think, for about 18 months. Uh, he was a salesperson, and that company went belly up after uh, a short order. So I was born in Lancaster, Pennsylvania just about long enough for us to figure out what he was going to do back in the Midwest and move back to Indiana. But I've, we have longstanding Hoosier roots going back many generations. And for all practical purposes, I grew up in Indianapolis near the Broad Ripple area before that was a, a fashionable sort of cosmopolitan <laughs> scene. And, and then we moved up to Carmel and uh, that was where I spent per, uh, most of my childhood. So what described your childhood? What what was it like? Obviously you had an interest in sports. I assume you were you were uh, strong academically. What was a uh, young Todd Young like? Yeah, I was uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors as as uh kids in my generation I, th- I think had had a habit of doing. I I love sports. So, uh I was always up for a pickup game of basketball or football or uh you know, maybe soccer. I think mom enrolled me in the Carmel Dads Club soccer program because I, I was a small kid. I was a really uh-huh. small kid. I tried different sports and I'd do okay. But if it involved contact, I wasn't you know, really good. So uh, I think she associated that with a sport that didn't involve a whole lot of contact. And until she st- saw me begin to play soccer. and I, I was going to say, soccer is a pretty physical yeah. game. Yeah. Yeah, and then I, I I got a little more aggressive over the years, but I have to say that that really took. And I think I said it earlier, soccer was my passion growing up. I most of the life lessons I learned uh, were probably learned out on the soccer field, teamwork and hard work and and uh, patience and you know, so just all kinds of great lessons. So I did a lot of that growing up. Uh, had uh, an older brother still. Uh, he's still in uh, north of Indianapolis, uh, younger sister. We're a close family. I lived in a pretty safe neighborhood. My parents were really engaged in in uh, our lives. And and um, I would say Carmel was a great place to grow up. It, it really was. And uh, it was just at a time when, when Carmel was kind of starting to grow. Uh, it wasn't the Carmel that most of us think of right now. There wasn't one roundabout, to my knowledge, <laughs> in 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 the area, and uh, you know the the schools were good. So um, you know, I still think of that upbringing quite a bit, and it there's no question in my mind that it makes me feel really grateful and makes me want for my children and really everyone uh, some of the same advantages that that I had that other kids yeah. don't have. Yeah. What do you think of Carmel today as you reflect back when you were young? I know I just had Jim Brainerd uh, on the podcast talking about his impending uh, retirement, uh, at least from politics. Wow. What I mean, that that is a city uh, roundabouts, but just so many other things have just dramatically changed. Well, Jim Brainerd is one of the most impressive public servants uh, I've ever met, just based on legacy. Right. I mean, he has has helped shepherd and that's a good word for it. There have been other leaders, uh, civic, governmental business along the way who've been very involved and very important to the success of, of Carmel and uh, most of whose you know, names we'll, we'll never know. But 
Carmel uh, used to be a pretty slow place. Uh, the, the best restaurant in Carmel when I moved to Carmel was Country Kitchen on Carmel <laughs> yeah. Drive. I mean, right. this was this where the cops went and got donuts and 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 coffee, and you still had the McDonald's right there. Yeah, uh, but there wasn't much more. Yeah, uh, you yep. had Muldoon's, an early version of Muldoon's, come in after a couple of years. You're nodding your head affirmatively. You remember yep. those years, Gary? Yeah, that's funny. Uh, but yeah. you know that that was Carmel, and and I'm really not kidding. There were a lot of cow fields around. There was a yep. lot of farmland. There was nothing uh, all the way into high school west of Meridian. It was all fields. There was a period in which our Carmel, our, our uh, soccer fields were moved over to the Spring Mill area yes. yep. west of Meridian, yep. right? And that was where our high school fields were, in fact. And uh, But there was a, a period of time in which there was a, a pig farmer, or actually a, a guy who wanted to develop some real estate over there, and they were told no by the local authorities. And so he said, all right, well, I'm going to start a pig farm. And you could barely stand uh, to play soccer because of the stench of the pig farm. <laughs> now, this is now where the fresh market is located. Yeah. All kind of, you know, sort of like worldly cuisine. <laughs> there was a pig farm there. So I remember the good old days in Carmel. And we've just come a long way from those days. But yeah. uh, you know, the people haven't changed much. Um, yeah. They're still, they love their families. They love their community. Uh, it's a safe area. They love the schools. And uh, the commute is it just isn't as bad as it used to be as, as you had to go to the Indianapolis area in order. Yeah. To- so you enlisted uh, in the Navy right out of out of high school. Yeah, I, I had an opportunity. I, I was enlisted in the Navy for a year plus. Uh, it was 1990. Mom said, go, he's going in the Navy. There'll be no problem. Navy hadn't been in a fight in forever. Within a few <laughs> weeks, the first Gulf War broke out. So mom was anxious, but I was in a classroom the whole time. So it wasn't a real yeah. serious situation. Okay. Yeah. Well, talk about the uh, U.S. Naval Academy. You got an appointment to the Naval Academy, which is uh, obviously quite prestigious. What 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 about uh, the Academy really attracted you? A couple of things. I first learned about the Naval Academy from Soccer America magazine. And uh, they, they, yeah. their Division One soccer team had made the tournament. And I saw the look on on the faces of some of these players. Uh, they had the close haircuts. They looked uh, they looked like like strong young men. They looked pretty intense. And I just got to thinking about the challenge. I really like challenges. I like to yeah. tackle challenges that are entirely unfamiliar to me, which is ultimately I think led me to my current job. But um, that appealed to me, and the prospect of potentially being able to play uh, Division I soccer was interesting, combined with an ethic of service. That was really important to my family. So those things wrapped together all uh, lent themselves to going to uh, the Naval Academy. Describe to someone who may not be familiar, and how you talk about challenging, how challenging it is to attend whether it's Naval Academy, West Point, whatever the case by, might be, but a military academy, the academic rigor, and you yeah. played sports as well on top of it. That's another another layer as well. Well, I, I didn't fit the profile for the typical, I think, would-be midshipman at the U.S. Naval Academy. So many young kids, uh, and they're amazing. They're remarkable. I actually uh, have some discretion over giving uh, nominations to these young people who apply to attend Annapolis, for example. And many of them plan from a young age to be astronauts or test pilots or Navy SEALs. And I came to it uh, late 
in my high school career, uh, as I've described, it is a academically, physically, and, and I would even say emotionally rigorous experience. For me, the physical challenge wasn't that great. I was prepared for that. Academically, I really had to learn how to study. I was a very good student in high school, but not as good as many of the valedictorians and salutatorians that I was thrown in, in the mix yeah. with. And then emotionally, it's just, you know, so many young people, especially today, I would say, are told from a very young age from their parents and, and peers uh, that they're special, they're unique, uh, the world revolves around them. And right. um, you are disabused uh, of any special, unique qualities you might have when you when you go into an environment like that in a healthy way. If yeah. you want to be part of a unit, you need to do uh, what is in the best interest of, of the unit. Sometimes that means recognizing that uh, your own desires and, and interests ought, ought to be second to the desires of you know your country yeah. in this case. Yeah. So you, you started, you get you had military service, but, but it's kind of started your post-military ca- career, if you will, in Orange County, right? In Paoli? There was a, a step or two in between that. Yeah. yeah. So um, left the Marine Corps in, in 2000. You got your uh, MBA I, in Chicago, at University of Chicago, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. I uh, actually began that and almost finished it while I was in the Marines wow. at, okay. at night. I had a few credits left, and I have to say, after a decade being uh, wearing a military uniform in school and in the Marine Corps, I was ready for a little break, uh, Gary. So I finished up my last couple of credits studying in London. There was a little institute over there that Margaret Thatcher chaired and uh, earned a master's degree there. And then I came back to the United States, and I did what I'll tell my children never to do, which is uh, I I showed up in an unfamiliar town. I was Washington, D.C., without a job. (laughs) Uh, And and so I ran out of money and uh, one Senator Dick Luger was kind enough to give me a shot at at, at uh, my first job out of the Marine Corps. So I spent about a year and a half working for him as a policy advisor on trade and some other matters. Uh, Moved back to Indiana and I was a management consultant for a company you're probably familiar with, Gary, uh, Crow. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then, you know, I, I hope I'm not boring people, but I've, I've, I've moved around a lot. My, at night, I went to law school, met my now wife, and uh, she was a practicing attorney in her hometown of, of Paoli. And I did that for a couple of years until I like to say I found an exit strategy from the practice of law. I ran for Congress. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And you were uh, a United States uh, congressman, I think, uh, for three terms. That's right. Three terms uh, in the House. And then um, obviously had an opportunity in 2016 as Dan Coates retired uh, to run for this seat. Hey, uh, you mentioned Dick Luger. Would you consider him one of your key mentors as you reflect on things? No, he was a a role model is the best way to put it. He was by reputation uh, a fairly quiet person. uh, But when he spoke, it really mattered. And um, I, I spent a fair amount of time, just over an 18-month period, observing how he worked. He, he prepared a lot. He was a, a, a great student. He actually knew things. And uh, there are a lot of people who do my job who don't seem to know much, right? Uh, they go through the motions. And it was important for him to accomplish things. And so um, he was. He was a role model. And uh, I also liked how he carried himself. Mm-hmm. You know, you never had to worry about Dick Luger embarrassing the state of Indiana or our country. Yeah. And there's something yeah. to be said for that. 
Yeah, you seem to be, you know, a politician who 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 tends to reach across the aisle, and you know, Chipsack would be an example of that. Is that a, a lost art? I mean, we see so much, so many examples of divisiveness that exist in our country today. Is that spirit of uh, cooperation gone from politics? You know, it's not dead. It's not been snuffed out. Uh, it doesn't capture a lot of uh, present company accepted, a lot of media attention oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Because there's not as much sizzle to cooperating than there is disagreeing and perhaps even saying provocative things, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's it still exists. I don't want to be too too hard on on individuals who who uh, aren't seen doing it as much because it's a different atmosphere than uh, it was 20 years ago. I know because I spent a little time here in yeah. in Washington. But at the same time, I don't want to be too easy on those who don't try. And right. uh, I do make a significant effort to try and be at the table when we're working at on major pieces of legislation. And uh, maybe I can get there and then maybe I can't. But, you know, frankly, you're just kind of going through the motions unless you're working with colleagues who see the world differently, because at least in the United States Senate, it takes 60 votes to get anything of consequence done. That by definition means working with people across the aisle. I've long wondered this about congressmen and senators, those those who serve in Washington and managing that back and forth between Washington and and home in Indiana. How challenging can that be? You know, you want to stay obviously connected with the state, with what's going on here, coming back here and that travel back and forth and the demands on that. Give give me an idea on 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 what that's like. Is is it tough on your family? You know, it is challenging. I don't I don't want to feel sorry for myself. I'm privileged. I got an amazing job and I feel really blessed to have it especially during what are sometimes really challenging times. Uh, but with that said, uh, you know, I, I, I get up early on a Monday. I come back late on a Thursday. Uh, I work Fridays and oftentimes we'll have weekend commitments, especially as, as uh, you're trying to balance the demands of both a campaign uh, and your day job. But with that said, I, going back to my family, my dad was on the road all the time selling stuff. Uh, and uh, didn't have a secure paycheck. You know, he he got to eat what he killed, as they say in the business. Yep. And um, there are a lot of Hoosiers out there doing that. So if I want to lead them, thinking back to the Naval Academy, day one, right? If you want to lead, you better be out there doing a lot of things those who you, you want to lead uh, are also having to go through. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that kind of puts things into perspective, I think. Just uh, were reelected to a second term uh, in the U.S. Senate, defeating uh, Tom McDermott, uh, a, a race that, as I followed it a little bit, indications it might be you know competitive, but it really didn't end up being that competitive uh, in the end. You won by a sizable margin, and and you did not get a, a, an endorsement from Donald Trump, which uh, a lot was made on that. Did you? Ne- you didn't need it, I guess. No, I didn't need it. I'm a constitutional conservative, and I guess that makes me a bit. Uh, unique for some in the Republican Party, but uh, listen, I, I will proud. I, I, I pledge uh, uh, that that I will uh, uphold the Constitution of the United States, and I'll continue to do that. And I'm glad that's the sort of conservative leadership Hoosiers are looking for. What's next for Todd Young? I mean, you just again were reelected elected to another term in in the Senate. A lot of people, your your yours is a name very high on a lot of lists. As you look at what's next for Todd Young, what uh, what might that be? Well, listen, I, I want to reassure uh, Hoosiers and, and, frankly, my fellow fiscal conservatives that I haven't forgotten that we just authorized a lot of money 
to reshore micro uh, processor production in this country, to invest in R&D and so forth, designate tech hubs. We're going to get that right. So I'm going to work really hard on implementation. I'll be a conscientious U.S. senator. And at some point, am I going to begin thinking about other professional opportunities? I haven't given that any thought after an extended job interview and performance review. I'm, I'm really focused on, on doing this one right, but uh, perhaps yeah. at some point I'll... It, you know, as we wrap up, Senator Young, back to the whole uh, microelectronics, the chips, you really think that this this can be, I know there are a lot of people here in Indiana who do think this can be kind of one of those next big things for the state of Indiana. Well, I really do. And let me take it from kind of the, the firm level, the technology level, bringing it right down to our people, right? There are a lot of people in this country as our ch- uh, country has, has, as the economy has evolved and we seemingly reward uh, sweat as compared to knowledge a lot less than we used to, right? It's a knowledge economy. And there are a lot of people who are feeling left behind. They, don't, they didn't go to the same good schools growing up. They don't have the same educational opportunities and, and so forth. This, this is the opening volley in what I hope are, are a number of successive efforts to bring everyone along, to make them feel like they can meaningfully participate in this dynamic 21st century economy. They can earn the material rewards for themselves and their families and, and, and their communities and they can help us, frankly, defend our way of life, uh, outcompete and out-innovate the Chinese Communist Party. To me, I'm really excited uh, about uh, this, this development, and um, uh, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to have played a, uh, a role uh, in, in uh, this opening volley. Indiana Senator Todd Young, uh, my guest on the Business and Beyond podcast, Senator Young, thank you so much for taking the Taking the time, I know we'll be talking, I assume, more in the future, especially when it comes to the Chip da- CHIPS Act, because there'll be a lot of implications uh, for the state. So thank you for joining us in uh, Root USA Soccer on two. All right. Thanks, Gary. All right. And thank you for joining us on this edition of the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It's a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download all of our episodes and get Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com and download from there. This is Gary Dick. We'll see you next time.